Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Douglas Paul. When the Chinese People's Liberation Army marched into Tiananmen Square on June 4, 1989, it was a shock to many Americans. The Chinese leadership's decision to use tanks and hardened troops against unarmed demonstrators seemed to go against the tide of history as communist regimes in Eastern Europe were falling and even the once mighty Soviet Union was beginning to open up. The US president at the time of the Tiananmen crackdown was George H.W. Bush, who had served as the chief of the US liaison office in Beijing earlier in his career. President Bush had a special connection to China and the Chinese leadership. Here's President Bush reacting to those events in Tiananmen Square. Well, during the past few days, elements of the Chinese army have been brutally suppressing popular and peaceful demonstrations in China. There's been widespread and continuing violence, many casualties, and many deaths. And we deplore the decision to use force. And I now call on the Chinese leadership publicly, as I have in private channels, to avoid violence and to return to their previous policy of restraint. The, the crackdown called into question the previous decade of U.S.-China rapprochement, built on a foundation of anti-Soviet collective action and a normalization of China's foreign policy. The senior White House foreign policy official at the heart of how to orchestrate a U.S. response to the crackdown was Doug Paul. Paul was someone who was not surprised that the nationwide protests ended in bloodshed in the spring of 1989. Paul had served as a senior intelligence analyst covering China before joining the Reagan White House, and then served as a special assistant to President George H.W. Bush on East Asia. In our conversation, this Brown and Harvard grad describes the delicate diplomacy before and after Tiananmen. Paul explains the rationale for maintaining lines of communication with the communist leadership, despite American outrage over the civilian deaths around Beijing and the ensuing political clampdown. At the end of our conversation, Paul talks about his service as the top U.S. representative to Taiwan in the George W. Bush administration. He unpacks why Taiwan will remain a critical issue for how the United States will deal with the People's Republic of China for future generations. Doug, thanks so much for taking time. Uh, before getting to your long career working on Asia policy in government and in the think tank world, I just wanted to ask you, at a personal level, you went to Brown, which was my alma mater, mm -hmm. at a time before Ira Magazine was there and kind of changed. Oh, the he was new, there new with me, actually. <clears throat> so I, I just wonder, you went to Brown and then Harvard after, first of all, what was the university like then? But then second of all, how did you end up doing kind of East Asian history at a time when maybe that wasn't so, um, so popular? Well, you know, um, looking back, you may not feel the immediacy of it, but the Vietnam War, the protests against the war, uh, really were the story of my time in university. It was 1965 to 1969, and the U.S. had had the initial thrust into Vietnam under Kennedy, and then the souring on the Vietnam War that took place under Johnson. And uh, protests mounted every year, but finally, my last year there, 1970, uh, the um, huge rallies took place in Providence, and not just Providence, across the country. So people were preoccupied with the war, and I was 
had the reason I was there supposedly from 65 to 69 but graduated in 70 was I had interrupted students service from an illness that I suffered so I lost a semester when you do that and you're of draft age you had discontinuous education and therefore you're draftable you can be pulled out of school and some the my personal level of interest went way up and what was what were we doing in, in Vietnam why were we there so I started packing courses there was a, a history of Southeast Asian studies taught by a former diplomat and longtime professor from Cornell background uh, Lee Williams on Southeast Asia but his own background really was China too and so we, you start talking to him about Southeast Asia and he kind of gravitates you back and the war was um, in many ways justified in terms of preventing domino effect of the spread of Chinese communism through Southeast Asia and I said well let's learn more about China and then I started taking more courses on that and language as well uh, had some good teachers along the way and that's where my interest really t took off. And fascinating. So then um, you graduated, moved on to graduate school, uh, and then went to go work for the U.S. government. Well, I was yanked out of graduate school to be drafted. And as a, in preference to being drafted, I joined the Navy, went to the officer's candidate school. Uh, the Navy treated me very well. And I went off to Vietnam service out of a ship based in Yoka, Yokosuka, Japan, but on the coast of China. And did funny things. I remember one of my favorite episodes was we were down there shortly after Kissinger had met with the North Vietnamese in Paris a few times. And just on the eve of the elections in 1974, the midterms, he announced that we had peace at hand. And uh, actually, peace wasn't really immediately at hand, but it was useful politically at the time. And we were told to uh, make nice to the Chinese ships that were coming down to supply the North Vietnamese to keep the war going. So one of my jobs was to pull alongside with our ship, a Chinese ship, and say, uh, by the way, we see you're offloading stuff into Vietnam. We, meet, we mean you no harm. President Nixon wants to have a good relationship with Premier Joe, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to be firing shells over your ship to try to destroy the things you're offloading. And, you know, please excuse us as we do so. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating. And so what year was that? That, that was 1974. So really quite towards the end right. of the regime. Um, fascinating. And then from there, um, back to graduate school? Back to graduate school, yes, yes. And, uh, and in graduate school, I was, looking to, I was married to a foreign service officer who was based out of Washington, and we had to figure out what our respective careers might be. Um, then, and I think still shamefully today, people in the government have a hard time making tandem careers work. And uh, we were trying to make it work. And then I was approached by CIA. There was an opening that had been created. Uh, in uh, anal analysis at CIA, they needed to fill it. There had been a long-standing fight at CIA between those who believed the Sino-Soviet split was a deception by the two a adversaries of the United States, and those who believed that there was a real Sino-Soviet split and there was an opportunity to seize there. This was, you know, this is as late as 1976. Well, even that happens. late, there was that debate. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to believe, looking back, if you're a China watcher, that that was still going on. Anyway, they needed someone to come in who was not part of that debate. They picked me, and I went in, and, and I was kind of unaware of the environment I was going into, but that's where I got started doing day-to-day -day analysis on what's happening in Chinese foreign policy and Chinese leadership politics. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the, in the mid-'80s, uh -huh. was the kind of pre-Tiananmen crackdown and then the post-Tiananmen crackdown, the pre-Tiananmen crackdown and, and um, kind of preparations for visits then, uh, the ones that I, I, I stick in my mind is Yang Shengkun who came in <laughs> 1987 
Could you just talk a little bit about who he was and why he was coming and what, what your role is in, in that visit? It's, it's interesting you mentioned that one because I keep, I keep a photo of it on my office wall. It was such an interesting visit. Uh, Jan came and he had a, a delegation of people with him, all of whom remained very important figures for the next 15 years. There's a lot of continuity in the Chinese system, generally speaking. And so these became the basis for longstanding relationships, both sometimes amicable and sometimes adversarial, but you know, still we knew each other pretty well at the end of all those years. And Yang brought that team along. A president, Vice President Bush was going to be the one who really laid his hands on the visit because he was so interested in China on his own. And he, he took over the then presidential yacht Sequoia and invited Yang, an army officer, to come spend time on the boat. And my, <laughs> on a personal level, Chinese military uh, with army backgrounds tend to do very poorly on things that float. They tend to get seasick and the like, and they were quite worried about that. But Yang got on the boat, they got over their trepidations, and the president, later president, now then Vice President uh, Bush, laid on the charm very heavily, very friendly, and it opened everybody up. And Yang went on to describe his revolutionary history in intimate detail over the dinner table among all those people. Unfortunately, the only people at the dinner pit table were not expert in Chinese party history. So we got secondhand descriptions that were completely misleading about what Yang had said. This was not, now I wish we were more technically uh, prof proficient and had put some microphones under the table, but we didn't do that. It was a, a social occasion that we, that was a missed opportunity to understand a very important part of Chinese revolutionary history. Wow, and so from just stepping back uh, and explaining who Yang Shengkun was and why he was coming and kind of your yeah. role in making sure that that well, is Yang, available. Well, Yang was um, uh, very key in keeping PLA behind Deng Xiaoping. Uh, later on, he and Deng Xiaoping had a, a breakdown. He became uh, the nominal president of China, and uh, he and his brother, uh, Yang Baibing, I believe, wanted to apparently, according to the allegations later leveled against them, had, had tried to uh, manipulate behind the scenes against the plans that Deng Xiaoping had for party leadership succession. And uh, he was maneuvering around Beijing, and Jiang Zemin and others came into Deng Xiaoping and reported this to him, and it led to a big uh, cleaning out of Yang's office uh, in, in uh, Zhenghanhai and at the Central Military Commission, and Yang was then history. But he went a long way before he ambition got the better of him. Fascinating. So in the run-up to 1989, Yang Shengkun comes, um, as you say, Vice President Bush hosts, having served as the head of liaison office in Beijing, was seen as kind of an old friend of China. Right. And so I'm sure they're very pleased to kind of have that, that interaction. Well, you know, President Bush thought it was, a, it was a good relationship. And when he became president in early 89, um, there was going to be a f an early trip as in his first year to Japan because the Emperor Hirohito had passed away and they had saved the services so that the first new, the new American president could come and attend uh, part of the high-profile U.S.-Japan relationship. And President Bush wanted, on top of that, to have one last chance to go see, as he put it, my old friend Deng Xiaoping, who was already up into his 80s and, and was in the process of relinquishing power gradually. And so he arranged to uh, also, after the funeral, to go on to Beijing. And, uh, and President Bush, in his usual way, he wanted to have a big event to mark the occasion. He wanted to have a rodeo-themed, being from Texas, a rodeo-themed banquet 
and invite all sorts of people. And, and Yang Shangkun would be his counterpart, uh, a major guest at the dinner. And just stepping back in your role at that moment, you were the person in charge of... Well, I was, in, I was at the NSC, but I was not put in charge of that visit. <laughs> because we had a new, a new uh, National Security Council leadership, they wanted uh, a guy in my office, my boss, Carl Jackson, to take personal responsibility. So I was put back to the second line on things like, who do you invite to the dinner and stuff like that. Got it. And then the dinner invitations went out. And the embassy had recommended, and no one had objected to, including on the list a, a physicist named Fang Li Zhe, who was the, you know, for those who don't have the context, he was the Chinese Sakharov. He was the man who was the dissident intellectual leader in China. And he was invited to the dinner, and the Chinese were learned of that and were very unhappy. And they had come to the decision that if Fang Li Zhe was going to be there, Yang Shangkun was not going to attend the dinner. You don't attend banquets honoring your adversaries is the thinking. And uh, so Fang Lijer was on his way, and all kinds of interference was thrown up by Chinese security uh, forces to make sure he never got there. And when they were sure he wouldn't get there, then Yang would deign to show up for the, for the barbecue. It was a, it, it's almost a, I mean, if it weren't so serious, you'd say it was like a, a Hollywood comedy of, of errors. Uh, in the end, Fang was rejected from the party by the authorities. He came to the U.S. residence of the ambassador looking for uh, safety. He was turned away at first, and then the U.S. went out and found him and brought him back, and he became a long-term house guest. He became a, a refugee inside the embassy residence for some months uh, as we go went through a tough period leading up to and through the Tiananmen uh, incident in uh, June 1989. So on, on Tiananmen, um, as the events unfolded and students and then others kind of came to the square and then the party had a couple of internal decisions as to how to brand these events. Uh, what was your role back in Washington and who were you in communication with in the field but then also here in DC? Well it was interesting, I, mean, to put it, I went out to, um, to do the advance for President Bush's visit to Beijing. Um, advanced work is, you know, making sure there's a blood supply and where the local hospitals are and, and who's going to be at the meetings. It's very routine stuff. And uh, in the process of which I was invited by one of the officers at the embassy with whom I had a long-standing relationship to take a long walk outside somewhere where we would not be overheard. And this person very foresightfully said, as an economic analyst at the embassy, he'd been out in the factories. And he said the country was seething with feelings of, uh, of exploitation and anti-corruption. And uh, that person said to me at the time, this city is about to blow up. And this is early 1989? This is late fe February 1989. Mm. And so I came back to Washington and I filed a report on that and said, you know, there's, there's some pretty turbulent stuff going on out there. And it's not being reported by the embassy mm. formally. Interesting. So this is a, I, th I thought that was a tremendous insight. I probably should have done more with it, but I didn't. And just planning went ahead to have the uh, the president uh, go there, and it was, the crowds were just assembling as President Bush arrived. You know, was, and uh, because the pre the premise for the diplomatic activity that year was that the new leader in Russia, Gorbachev, had agreed to resolve the so-called three um, obstacles to better China-Soviet relations. 
So he pulled his fleet out of Vietnam, he pulled his forces out of Mongolia and off the border, and they resolved some uh, Afghanistan activities that China had objected to, the invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, so Deng Xiaoping was prepared to receive Gorbachev in Beijing. The world's press were coming to Beijing because they all wanted to cover this major event of the, uh, the reduction in tensions between Russia and China. And um, when President Bush got to Beijing, Deng Xiaoping wanted a very clear message to get across that whatever may happen to resolve these obstacles between Russia and uh, China, that it was not going to lead to some new entente or alliance between those two against the U.S. That is, the U.S.-China relationship would remain strong right. even as and so, he, it, relationship so, so Deng Xiaoping went into a long discussion of the history of Russian-Chinese relations and how Russia had dismembered the northeastern parts of China, seized territory from Mongolia, and had left a long legacy of unresolved issues that would not go away just because they've uh, they've taken care of the three international issues that had been on China's list of obstacles to improved formal relations with Moscow. This is what Deng Xiaoping had told U.S. Told, Bush, told President Bush. He told Bush this. That yes. even though relations with Moscow were warming from Beijing's point of view, there was still a need for a, a close relationship. That was correct. Yes. yes. And so um, students filled the square. There was um, back to June, to April, May, June, nineteen eighty-nine. Uh, there was a decision of the party leadership to declare the protests counter-revolutionary that didn't seem mm -hmm. to stop the protests in some ways, seemed to kind of egg them on. What was the level of interest back here in Washington, and how did you see your role in kind of trying to figure out what U.S. policy should be? Well, you, you mentioned the students, but I think what really, I mean, having students protest is something that's not really new in China. It's, there's, that's kind of a natural outlet in in Chinese politics that students will be given a little bit more leeway to express themselves and they'll sober it up when they get older, you know, that sort of thing. But what really disturbed the Communist Party was that the workers were coming out. And it was that same thread that I got from the officer in the embassy earlier, which is people on the shop floors of China felt they were being exploited, you know. Properties were being no longer assigned, they were being rented to people. And to pick up your key for a rental, you have to put five $100 bills in the hands of the official who had the key. So petty corruption was really irritating a lot of people in Beijing. Moreover, there was, a, uh, there was some inflation. The freeing up of market prices had allowed a lot of uh, ordinary consumables to increase tremendously in price or become unavailable in the market. And so there's a, there was a seething resentment there. And that's when, that's when those people came to the square and joined with the students that the party got nervous and started to move towards declaring it a counter-revolutionary movement and then raising the, 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 t the stakes and the tensions very high for this. Uh, we, we were watching it uh, from the NSC point of view and through the U.S. intelligence community very closely observing the military movements. Um, there were all sorts of counter-indications. The Beijing military district commander um, uh, early on signal he did not want to put armed troops against the people of Beijing. Uh, he was removed, as you would expect. Then Deng Xiaoping appealed to the commanders in the military districts outside Beijing to send troops, and we started seeing flights and train loads and truckloads of, of troops coming. And each of commander in the, around the, the, the rest of China knew that this was a time to show his patriotism or his loyalty to Deng Xiaoping. So when they got the message, they had to to send forces, they did. 
and it became a kind of loyalty test inside the Communist Party. The party split dramatically. Uh, a relatively small group supported the premier, Zhao Ziyang, who had been a kind of reformist figure, but who, um, in those reforms, uh, had allowed these um, uh, price increases and other things that were feeding discontent. So even those who wanted the reforms were feeling he wasn't doing the job as well as he could. So his own coalition wasn't as strongly backing him as would have been the case. And then he was up against what they call the the eight, the eight uh, worthies or the eight sages. There are eight old members of the party who would meet with Deng Xiaoping at his residence, not in formal party meetings, but as keepers of the flame of the original revolution. And they were very conservative and very, very in f much in favor of declaring the movement on the streets to be counter-revolutionary and taking military action. And when finally uh, Zhao Ziyang, in a conversation with Gorbachev, allowed that all of us could see to be said publicly, or at least uh, in a diplomatic conversation, that uh, in fact Deng Xiaoping was in charge and he was not in charge as the premier of the country, then that was considered an act of disloyalty and became the pretext for him to be placed under long-term house arrest. And then the p policy was turned over to uh, Premier Li Peng, who was prepared to take a very hardline approach. He declared martial law for Beijing, and the rest is, was the unfolding of history. Right. And f you had mentioned Feng Lijia coming to mm -hmm. the ambassador's residence and being a long-term resident there uh, at this time. And I know there was a, a fair amount of diplomatic effort to try to resolve that. The Feng the Lijia cases, I mean, um, American embassy residences are not designed to have long-term uh, guests of that dissidence. The famous one was Cardinal Minzenti in Budapest, and he was there for, I don't remember, but something like 30 years, and it was always a bone in the throat of U.S. relations with Hungary, whether it was certainly during the period when they were part of the Soviet Empire. Uh, and Fang Lijer was with, uh, with our embassy, and uh, he, our goal was to get him out safely as soon as possible. And we had a change of ambassadors from Winston Lord to James Lilly. Uh, Jim Lilly was personally close to President Bush, had a lot of uh, uh, trust from President Bush towards Jim. Jim was a very experienced case officer from the CIA over many years, imaginative guy who knew China well, raised in China, spoke good Chinese. And uh, in many ways, you know, given the, the hand that was dealt him as the new ambassador there, probably couldn't have asked for a better guy to be on post. One, during the actual events of Tiananmen, he really rallied the embassy forces to, to, to feel that someone was taking care of them when, uh, when they were occasionally even under you know, strafing gunfire and, uh, and, and certainly felt uh, confined on the streets of China in their homes. Uh, so he was a great moral leader in that. But he was also very clever at trying to find ways to get Fang Lijia out of the country without losing our dignity. And he started uh, issuing reports, and we never really understood how valid they were, that Fang was experiencing cardiac difficulties, and we made sure the media found out that he had heart problems, and this created more global sympathy for, for and eventually um, Jim was able to arrange during a very brief window of tolerance from the Chinese leadership for Fang to get on a, a plane and go off to the UK. And there were some terms for this, like he wouldn't criticize the U.S., et cetera, or wouldn't criticize his, his Chinese host. And those were all you know, clearly just face-saving terms. And, um, and they were, he was 
going to be taken out of the embassy to the airport and gotten out of China as fast as possible before that window of tolerance closed. But even as he was leaving, we, we were able to detect that people who opposed his, uh, his, his, his exile from China were trying to stop the car from getting to the airport. So it was a perils of Pauline kind of chase right to the airport. But um, Lily you know, succeeded in captaining that effort successfully and getting Fang Li Jiao. Of course, when Fang landed in, in the UK, he immediately denounced President Bush, you know, as, as this has often been our case. So he, it, was a, um, uh, it was not a generous act that was well paid with gratitude. Um, so the troops march into downtown Beijing June 3rd, June 4th. Uh, Mop-up operations, as you alluded to, gunfire, some of which ended up towards residences where we had diplomats and there were other diplomats living. Um, June 5th, you come into the office. What are you trying to do at that moment? Well, we, the first thing we did was we called an interagency meeting to see what the, what ask our, our legal advisors what does the law require under these circumstances? And then to ask our people in, in relevant political jobs, you know, this is the policy level, assistant secretary level. Uh, okay, what do we recommend to our bosses as to go the way forward? As you can imagine, the Sunday talk shows are just full of, you know, tear up everything we've ever done with China. And President Bush had a very strong view that the relationship that had been built up in adverse times had served American interests and it shouldn't just be cast away. That we had to find an appropriate uh, way to uh, express American unhappiness with what happened, but at the same time not throw the baby out with the bathwater, to, to use a trite phrase. And so we had an interagency meeting on the 5th. I believe it's the 5th, not the 6th. And uh, the first thing that happened was the representative of the Department of Defense said, we are willing to surrender our defense relationship. It was the PLA, it was the instrument of suppression on the streets of Beijing, and the appropriate way to respond to that is to end those programs that we were talking about a few minutes ago, the Peace Pearl and other cooperative programs. Um, now some of those we would like to have continued, but there's a sacrifice right away to try to deal with the, the heat felt from Congress, the media, public opinion, about how China had disappointed our hopes for a more reformist and tolerant country. Uh, so that was the first step. And then over the ensuing months, uh, you know, in the, uh, over the prior 10 years of normal relations with China, uh, starting with the Carter administration, they worked very hard to build uh, intera interaction um, activities between every American institution and every Chinese counterpart, from the National Institutes of Health to the Defense Department to Commerce Department to Education. And everyone had a budget for that activity, small but you know, symbolic. Well, the next eight, nine months were spent losing those budgets in reviews and committees of Congress. And so what was a fairly rich, superficially rich uh, array of, of arrangements between the U.S. and China were one by one peeled back till we had almost nothing. And uh, uh, so bureaucratically, this was the beginning of a, a significant build down of the U.S.-China relationship. Um, much more so than we've seen so far under the Reagan, I mean, under the Trump administration, uh, which has been also taking a very strong axe to existing arrangements. And under that uh, cloud, what was the Chinese 
efforts with the United States? What was China looking for, and what were their interactions like? You must have interacted with their ambassador here. Uh, no, I, I, I remember going to see the ambassador, saying, look, we have no more channels. Nobody's talking to anybody. We can't get people to answer phones. But I came to your house to ask you what's going on. How can we, how can we do better on this? And he said, you know, everything depends on the eight old men in Beijing, and they're not oh. interested. <laughs> not interested in, uh, in trying to build relations, and so we don't have anything to work with. Um, President Bush has famously sent uh, Brent Scowcroft, his national security advisor, and Deputy Secretary of State Larry Eagleburger to China a couple weeks after Tiananmen to say, you know, guys, you Chinese, you Deng Xiaoping, have interfered in our internal relations. We were kind of getting along with you, but you had this event. We didn't create this event. You did. Give us some way out of this. You know, release some of these people you've arrested. Uh, uh, lower the guard. Uh, stop jamming Voice of America. Do some things that would be important. And uh, that uh, visit didn't really accomplish much except to uh, make the Chinese realize that Bush was not their enemy. There may be something to work with. Uh, and then not much happened after that. Subsequently, uh, Richard Nixon together with an advisor to Jimmy Carter, who, uh, Mike Oxenberg, went off to China, I think it was September of 89, and that said, sounds right, yeah. if, um, if, if uh, you know, what can we do to start putting this back together? You know, I, Richard Nixon, have invested a lot in this relationship, and here's this guy from Jimmy Carter who normalized relations. How can we get things in a more solid base? And as I recall, Deng Xiaoping said, look, we want to restore the relationship as much as possible and here are the base here is the basis for a deal where y you will help to re-stimulate investment in China and uh, com normal commercial relations which were imperiled because we had annual reviews of our trade status between China and the US and and China would meet our concerns on uh, in prisoners uh, VOA and stuff like that that w that became that came back and was reported to President Bush and he said okay I want Brent Scowcroft and Larry Eagleburger to go back and see what they can work out. So in December, so a second, a second, second trip. trip. Mm -hmm. This one, this one was not kept secret at the time, and uh, they went into China. I was with them, and we had long talks with Li Peng and Jiang Zemin, who had been put in place, plus Deng Xiaoping, and um, the the message was: yes, we're going to try to meet these concerns on both sides, and it seemed to have been. Uh, we, we had an agreement on a number of steps that would be taken, and over time, the more steps taken, the more confidence we could rebuild in each other. And the first steps were to start with prisoners and the Voice of America jamming, as I recall. And then right after we got back to the United States, um, the, the security authorities in Romania arrested and then executed the then dictator of Romania, Ceausescu, and his wife. Eight old men in Beijing saw the film of the machine gunning of those two leaders, and they put themselves in a similar position, and things really hard and fast. And all of the communication links and the promises that had been made just weeks before disappeared, and we were reduced to really no communications between the two sides. And then I think in, in about 91 is when Secretary Baker makes his trip to China. Right. Baker was going out to the, uh, I think it was the APEC meetings, and it seemed odd that at this point we, st we still had not had any 
you know, Baker and, and Bush had announced there would be no, as part of the initial reaction to Tiananmen, we would, we would cease official delegations to China. Uh, but it seemed odd that we would go so long. We have to, at some point, resume more normal relations. And I sent an, a message or a memo to the president through Brent Scowcroft and said maybe we should take advantage of Jim Baker going out there to make this happen. I'm, I'm confident that Secretary Baker was not happy that he was the first to go in there, and I was sent along with him to make sure I understood how unhappy he was. Uh, and But he, he did what he was asked to do by his boss, the president, which was to be the first to go back into China uh, and to try to establish some basis for that, that had been lost for the previous two years. And uh, I, it was a quite a quite a dramatic trip uh, flying in. The, uh, there had been a considerable amount of discussion among people from State Department and on the ground with the embassy over links that probably could be observed by the Chinese that, that we ought to have Baker meet with some dissidents at the embassy, much as was normally done in Moscow at the residence with Russian dissidents. But the Chinese um, un intolerance for that was a lot higher than the Russian intolerance. I remember as we landed at the aircraft at the official airport uh, and went into Beijing, I think there was a PLA trooper about every nine meters along the way, you know, completely unnecessary show of force. When we were at the state guest house between meetings, I went off to a marketplace and so did you guys stay at the Diaotai State we Guest House, State guest which house. is a state guest house on the west side of Beijing, right. where often used for foreign delegations. Right, and that's where you have your meetings and things, mm -hmm. many of the meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, I went off to, to the Dongfeng Market, which was still in existence back then. And every poor peasant who wanted to come up and talk to me, try to sell me a stone or something, was carted off by the police because they were so afraid somebody would be, would somehow meet someone they shouldn't meet out on the streets. It was a, a very intense uh, period. It led to a meeting between Secretary Baker and, um, and we were trying to find international issues of common concern that would provide some basis, and Baker being the Secretary of State had broad-ranging concerns about the Middle East and all. China had been upsetting us because it was selling uh, contracts to sell missiles to Iraq and Iran, and we wanted to get them to stop. And uh, eventually it actually worked as a policy. Uh, but the first real senior serious uh, engagement on this was Baker in the meeting room with Premier Li Peng. And it had all been arranged in advance that Li Peng would say certain words and it meant that they were not going to sell these missiles anymore. But in the actual meeting, he just couldn't bring himself to say it. And you know, different vice ministers and others would pop up and say, what the Premier meant to have said was the following. And, and Baker was getting more and more impatient. I, was, I, I loved it. He's, he's a terrific negotiator, very admirable figure. And I remember him giving the signal, start the engines on the airplane, I'm out of here. And, and suddenly Li Peng had a change. This is in the middle, in of, the the middle of the meeting. He just was clearly frustrated. For those who haven't been, can you just describe what a meeting looks like with the premier? Well, it's, it's a, you know these long banquets with... Uh, chairs set up and they tend not to look you in the eye. They have papers in front of them which they prefer to stare at and if not that they blankly look off into the distance. So it's, heavy. it's, not, it's an extra human kind of engagement especially in those days. It's a little better now but it's still essentially the same format. Chairs are much more comfortable these days because there's more money in China to buy better chairs. But in those days it was, that was a very cold meeting. It was a lot of people in the room because there were a lot of equities at stake and it was the first chance really anybody had to meet at this level in a long time. So they all wanted to be there and, and do their part. It was, a, and, but Li Peng was especially uh, 
cold and difficult individual. That, he, that, that was his calling card in the Chinese system, that he was a son of a bitch. And uh, that's what he And so in this meeting, Baker signif signals that he wants the engines to be turned on, and you guys are considering how to get straight from the meeting to the airport. Right. And then somehow Li Peng gets the hint. And Li Peng got the hint, and he, he said, okay, here are the words. And w in the end, they stopped selling those missiles. And, and this, this, you know, we talked earlier about Yang Shankun. Yang Shankun and his family had, were, we believe, really profiting from these sales. Lots of the children of the elite in Beijing were involved in these overseas military sales because it was a, a logical place for their parents to insert them to become um, traders of official goods. And, and so that was the, the case. And this had been a big issue for us. We were trying to keep the the, uh, the the levels of violence in the Middle East from starting to threaten Israel, Saudi Arabia, and others with these missile capabilities. And in fact, it was successful. And on that, what do you think made it successful? The constellation of uh, China wanting to get back in the good graces of the international community, their concern about what was happening to the PLA becoming less professional, uh, wanting to please the United States in some way? What, what, what kind of combination of things do you think Well, worked? I think you've touched on two of the, th I mean, the, th the theory about PLA being less professional, that, that may have been a concern, but it didn't come through to us. I think the embarrassment of officials having their kids identified really hurt them, their international reputation, because it fed back in the Chinese system. People were, you know, mumbling about profiteering by the, the elite who was supposed to be serving the people, not serving themselves. Uh, and also, I think that they they gradually bought into the notion that they should not be supporting Iranian moves towards nuclear capabilities, chemical weapons for these people. For a few years during the, the 80s, it was a tremendous profit source. The Iran-Iraq Iran War uh, allowed China to feed stock into both places and make good money off it. But it, it turned out that was would have repercussions on other interests. And I think, in, certainly in the case of Deng Xiaoping, he was persuaded that the, the international cost to China wasn't worth the, the short-term profit, even though even members of his family were profiting from this trade. Hmm. Fascinating. So then Deng has his southern tour in 92 mm. and kind of reform moves forward. Um, you're, you're the end of your time in at the White House. How were U.S.-China relations as you, as you left there? Well, you know, we were leaving the White House because Bill Clinton had defeated Bush, and he had done that, among other things, by saying that he's not going to coddle the butchers of Beijing. And uh, when he came into office, he announced a policy of no trading with China until they released political prisoners, which was an ill-advised choice of policies because it was unlikely to be successful. And that given the pressures of American business interests not to be excluded from the Chinese market, that it was not sustainable and proved not sustainable 14 months later or 15 months later when the president... Clinton had to reverse himself. Um, not, a, not a proud moment. And it should never have been put in that position by the people who advised him on that policy at the time, as many of us said. Uh, going out of office, there was it was all basically a downer. Uh, there were really not much. Uh, the Chinese were expecting the Clinton come, people to come in, and they were hoping, let, like previous presidents, and certainly uh, Reagan was a good example of this, on the campaign trail, you, you speak tough rhetoric when you get into office, you have to take into con account pragmatic considerations. And China was looking for signs for pragmatism from the uh, Clinton administration and uh, finding few. And so there were, it was, it was a, a low period. Oh, excellent point. Uh, I wonder if we could just move forward to your time in the 
Bush administration when you went to Taiwan to mm. be the director of AIT. First, could you just explain what AIT is? Sure, sure. And then uh, could you explain how you ended up out there? At the time, you might not recall, I was uh, on detail to the NSC and brought you in for a meeting with um, National Security Advisor Rice as a kind of farewell for, for her giving you kind of your marching orders, as it were, yeah. or really a catch-up moment to go out before you went out to Taipei. But could you just explain kind of what AIT is and then what your role was going out there? Well, the American Institute in Taiwan, AIT, was created by Act of Congress with some conspiracy from the Carter administration, but not a lot, in 1979 to make sure that the the substantive relations and the symbolic relations between the people of Taiwan and the United States were not lost in the rush to normalize relations with the mainland. Carter administration had submitted some draft legislation, uh, but I have to give a lot of credit to members of Congress who, who took it much more seriously and really wanted to institutionalize and, and to make sure that those agreements signed in the past as treaties between states would continue to be enforced even though we no longer recognized Taipei as the capital of a separate state. Um, and so the AIT was a, a corporate entity created in Virginia that was supposed to be the representative of the U.S. and its budget would come from the State Department. So it was, it was still connected to the government and Congress still had a finger on the pulse, but it was had the fig leaf of separation from the government that this corporate structure had. And we had a succession of people uh, in those jobs as director of AIT over the years. We m moved our facilities from the embassy proper to an old officer's club that was being you know, re repurposed as the AIT quarters. Everybody there was uh, forced to resign from the government in the early days. And they had, uh, and, and the first people who did this were very brave because they lost all their pension rights and things. But they were you know, loyal to service and, and went in and, and tried to make the best of it. And eventually Congress stepped in with some guidance from the different administrations to try to make whole the people who had sacrificed to, to in the early days uh, and to make it more routine for people to be assigned to Taipei. And over time, um, very gradually, always with a lot of resistance internally and externally, the functions of AIT have become more and more like a normal embassy all the while maintaining this, you know, this fig leaf that it's somehow not official. I wonder, before going to your experience at, mm. of heading AIT and, and working with um, the Chen Shui-bian administration and trying to advance U.S. interests, before that, could you just kind of compare the politics and interaction of a society like Taiwan, which has this Leninist background under the KMT, and mm. yet, as you say, under the TPP, became much more pluralistic? How would you compare that kind of interaction with interaction with the communists in Beijing and th those um, goals and, and their their method of dealing with the United States? Well, it's it's hard to to describe in a, in a few words. There are some there are many complementarities and many big distinctions. You know the the, uh, the two KMT leaders of uh, Kuomintang nationalist leaders of the late '90s, early 2000s. First, Li Donghui, who was a native Taiwanese and educated at Cornell University, and Lian Zhang, who went to the University of Chicago for his PhD and was also a native Taiwanese, but they had absorbed many of the uh, Leninist characteristics of the party structure in order to rise in the party. And so you can never draw a really 
clear line between how they operated and how the people on the mainland operated. Um, the DPP is much more uh, uh, street-driven, much more movement-driven, um, more, more volatile. You know, a, a good rally or a good opposition action or a defeat in some local election can really have a huge impact on the, the pecking order within the Minjindan, whereas the KMT just doesn't seem to change no matter what happens because they've got their Leninist structure and the guy at the top controls the money, controls the jobs, and, and keeps things going. But so they really are two different cultures competing for public attention. And so you get to Taipei, and how did you see your role as advancing U.S. interests and then Chen Shui-bian's in power? How did that relationship work? Well, in the first months of Chen Shui-bian's time in office, um, it should be said that uh, he, he got the nomination to be president because his own party thought he could not possibly win. That the because the KMT had such a dominant position in local governments, they controlled the purse strings for all sorts of uh, neighborhoods around, and they also paid money to people to vote in those days. Um, it's all the fate of the, the walking around money, and so they became, the DPP didn't think they had a chance to win, so they thought they'd sacrifice Chen Shui Bian, and then the, you know a better candidate would have a chance later. But nobody had bet on the fact that the KMT would split. And uh, James Sung, Sung Chuyu, had decided he was going to run against uh, Lian Zhan. And so when they had the final vote, uh, Chen Shui-bian won with only 37% of the total vote. And so Lian Zhan was the nationalist, the KMT right. nominee, and, and uh, James Sung had split apart yeah, the he'd party. He'd been a governor of Taiwan province, a fiction that, uh, but he had been a popular governor of Taiwan province, handing out goodies and building schools and things. And so they split the, 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 the pro- KMT nationalist vote, and Chen Shui-bian was able to win with a, a, a low plurality. And so th coming into office like that, he was very he was very amenable to conversations with our representative. And uh, that time it was Ray Burkhart, was uh, AIT representative. And he, he had free access to Chen Shui-bian and his key people. And the, you know the first test of a new president in Taiwan, especially one coming from the opposition party, what would he say at his inaugural ceremony? What would be the themes that would be signaling to Taiwan people, to the United States as their major patron, and to China as their major adversary for managing the, those complex relationships? And he was very amenable to suggestions on the speech. Uh, among the phrases he included in, uh, in his speech was uh, talking about a future one China. For China, the, the, the notion that one China, not two Chinas, not Taipei and Beijing, but one China is is out there somewhere in the future, keeps them in the game. They're willing to play along if, if you don't reject the notion of one China. If you talk about Taiwan independence or two Chinas, then you lose them and they become more agitated. The nationalist sentiment rises in China and leaders are tested by how much they oppose that. And so not to test the leaders, Chen Shui-bian accepted that he would put this phrase of future one China in there. And you know, it, the and in other ways, over the following year, he was fairly careful. He brought in former nationalist ministers and military people to staff his government. That, that was a good thing for continuity of management. He didn't have a, a deep bench of professional bureaucrats and minister-type uh, political people to, to bring into office. So it served his interests, but it also sent a signal to the U.S. and to China that there was more continuity than change, and therefore we don't have to get too upset about this election. That was the first year. Uh, the sad thing is that China was still in a bad mood about all of this. They 
had unwisely in 1996 in opposing Li Donghui's election and in 2000 opposing Chen Shui-bian's election had resorted to threats and intimidation, public threats and intimidation, which had the counterproductive effect on Taiwan voters of annealing their support for the person China was attacking. Um, they had not unlearned that lesson by 2001, 2002, and so China was still being not seizing the opportunities that had been put in front of them by the kind of future one China phraseology that Chen Shui-bian was willing to say. You're and saying the first year of the first Chen Shui-bian administration. China, China just didn't show any, any give at all. And for a leader in Taipei, you know, I, why should I keep doing this if it's not going to reward me? A democratically elected leader who has right, to Right, who has got to go on to other elections all the time. Huh. And so as it happens, I arrived in July of 2002, and the first weekend I was there, Chen Shui-bian decided he wasn't going to play the game along with the Americans anymore. He was going to start stirring public sentiment up against China, and he gave a speech which talked about uh, one uh, China and Taiwan being on opposite sides. And uh, it kind of surprised us. We didn't see it coming. We learned that virtually every Saturday there would be a rally somewhere, and Chen Shui-bian would go to the rally and make another surprising statement without telling us in advance. So a lot of my job in the first few months there was to try to try to reestablish the principle of no surprises. If you're going to do something, at least let us know in advance so I don't have to get a call from the White House saying, what the hell was that all about you know, when I get up on a Sunday morning? And uh, so uh, we, that was a, a big part of the problem. They always respected the U.S. relationship. They all had some connection. Chen Shui-bian was not educated in the U.S., but most many of the people around him were, and they cared what the U.S. thought. They had friends in the U.S. Congress and elsewhere whom they wanted to stay on the right side of. And President George W. Bush had very early on signaled that he was going to be the friendliest president to Taiwan you know, in quite a few years, uh, and, and he meant it. And he felt that he was somehow being let down by Chen Shui-bian. It had been very personal. And this, this got worse over the time I was there because Chen decided that for domestic political purposes, picking fights with China was better for him than to make nice to China. China, in the process, went through an evolution and became less hostile and threatening. But it was hard to notice from Taipei. You, it, it was a very uh, gradual process. and So, so when you left Taipei... What was your feeling? I mean, it was a, it was a difficult relationship, the Taiwan U.S.-Taiwan relationship during your tenure there. Uh, you you made um, amazing efforts at kind of trying to bridge that. When you left, what was your feeling? Well, we, it was it was very very much a, a job. <laughs> you had, you know, we, when I arrived in Taipei, um, we really didn't report back to. I mean, it was an outpost. Mm -hmm. We did not report back to Washington what was going on in Taipei because we didn't think anybody was interested. The um, major American and other foreign media had kind of left. Most of them felt it was better to put someone in Shanghai or Beijing to report on what was happening in China, and they would parachute into Taipei occasionally before an election and talk to a couple sources and report thinly on what was happening. So I felt it was really important to sort of lift the, the level of understanding. So we really pumped up our reporting of what was in the Taiwan media and pumped up our reporting of contacts with political and other figures so that people would get a sense of the stakes in Taiwan back home. I, that was a major, I thought, a major accomplishment. Um, it's not the sort of thing that ever gets cited in the history book, but I, I felt the difference, and I hope my successors would, would try to do that. They were not as committed to it as I was, but they didn't have to deal with the, the critical transformation that I had to deal with where we were 
really in the dark about Taiwan for the most part in Washington, and we've lifted the level of it now. We're still, there's only one major medium that has a reporter in Taipei today, and that's uh, the Financial Times, not an American newspaper. And uh, the um, attention to Taiwan is is vulnerable to you know surprises because we're not we're not there. We don't have our hands on the the pulse of the place. And we've just seen in this last week an election in Taiwan that uh, you know despite expectations on the mainland and Washington and elsewhere that the Kuomintang um, was out for a long time because of internal fractionation and. Uh, and lo loss of ideas, elan, um, generational change, that uh, nonetheless the KMT has had a number of its candidates re-elected back into office. Um, and people were surprised. But it's, it shows that there's a, um, there's a deep uh, conservatism among Taiwan voters that when people come in and they go too far toward the mainland or too far away from the mainland, they're going to lose the support of the voters who have a more pragmatic, middle-of-the-road approach. And uh, in, in recent times, I think the U.S. has been leaning more toward the incumbent government and has not prepared itself for the likelihood that incumbent government may be dumped by the voters in Taiwan. And they'll have to deal with the new administration. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could end. You've had a, this long career in, uh, here at the think tank at Carnegie, at the White House, at AIT, and you've dealt with uh, China uh, and with a number of other allies and friends in the region. What do you think you've learned about negotiating with China or dealing with China on a range of different issues that can help us kind of going forward of this is a country we're going to have to deal with on a lot of different issues? Yeah, well, you know, people, people try to point fingers of blame or why did we allow China to get so strong? I, I don't think we were going to get in the way of China getting strong. It was going to happen anyway. And now we have to develop the right ways to accommodate our interests to the the increasingly felt interest that China will have in its neighborhood. And uh, we've been uh, inclined to fall back on the Cold War model of doing, doing an Iron Curtain approach, sort of shut down all. This simply is not feasible. You know, if you look at Chinese high-tech industries, who are, in the invest who are the investors in those high-tech industries? Sure, there's some Chinese or some Japanese, but a hell of a lot of Americans are invested in those things. Pension funds. So when you say we want to cut Alibaba down and not let it get into our markets, there are Americans who will be affected by that. And by the same token, we have relationships with the countries that neighbor China, and they all have not binary relations, yes or no, with China. Vietnam, for example, has a long history of adversarial relations on borders and other matters, but they also have a long history of, of economic uh, interdependence. And they can't sacrifice either of those. They have to try to f pursue both. We're going to have to learn how to pursue both ourselves, too. Now, you asked about negotiations. The one thing I've learned is you have to prepare negotiations with China, and you have to create conditions that really leave no option but the one you want them to pass through. And if you can't get to that point, don't have the negotiation. Don't sit down and, don't, and don't, prepare. Don't sit down when you're not ready. Mm -hmm. But you want to make sure that the all the doors you don't want them to go through are locked, and you stand and hold a glass and an open hand of, of welcome to them th going through the door you want them to go through. That was certainly the case going back to the uh, some of the arms controls issues we've had with missile sales and other things with China, that we had to make it so unpleasant to pursue alternatives that they would then turn to what we wanted them to do. And then we would make them feel as good as we can about accepting that alternative. You know, forcing them to swallow bitter medicine 
is not going to get you to, to get them to swallow. You've got to you've got to sweeten the pot somewhere. Doug Paul, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, your wisdom on this. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. Doug Paul speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.